I always say that if you pave a path through the material before going in, before you're on the day, then, then what you've done is you're not stuck with what you planned. All you, what you've done is you've set intentions, right? And because you've set intentions, when Christoph Kozlowski calls it a thousand inconveniences, that's what you're going to face every shooting day. Yeah. So when you get to the thousand inconveniences and you can't do all the shit you planned, mm. you set your intentions. Now that's when you get to play because you're like, oh, I know what I'm supposed to be doing here. So I can change it here and it's still the same or it's yeah. even better. Welcome to Mentors on the Mic. I'm your host, Michelle Miller, a New York City native actress with credits in film, television, off-Broadway, and commercials. Every Monday, I'll bring you an incredible mentor in the entertainment industry, focusing on how they started and how they moved up to where they are today. Thanks for listening, and let the episode begin. So I'm so excited to introduce you to this new guest, this new mentor for our podcast, Jason Ensler, an executive producer, director, screenwriter extraordinaire. He has produced things from Andy Barker, P.I., Kathy and Kim, The Eastmans, through Heart of Dixie, which he also directed a couple episodes, Red Band Society, Transylvania, Redliners, The Exorcist on Fox, The Passage, Love, Victor, which he is now working on the second season of Love, Victor on Hulu. And we really sort of covered a lot of different topics, everything from how he started, how he began directing TV and film, and how he got new opportunities working with Aaron Sorkin, which I was really excited to talk to him about. And how is it to direct right now a major project like Love, Victor, a second season on Hulu in the midst of the pandemic? What's changed? What's the difference? And also, what's the difference between working on streaming versus network shows? So without further ado, welcome Jason Ensler. Hi, Jason. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being on today. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me. So I always like to ask my guests the first question, how did you start in the entertainment industry? Well, it depends how far back you want to go. I mean, I think you have an instinct from an early age to tell stories. Yeah. To, I mean, I don't know where it starts. I mean, it could you just say be... after school, like after you graduated or like what was your first thing that you felt like was like a paid gig that you were like, or we're not unpaid. I don't know. Well, you know, it's funny because I learned early that paid or unpaid, if you love, if you love it, then you've done it. You're like, you're successful. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like paid, paid is nice. And at a certain point, you don't do it without getting paid. And I right. always say, I don't direct for money. I direct for free. I put up with everybody's shit for money. <laughs> you know what I mean? So good. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so yeah. Otherwise, you know, I just write poems and like, you know, do my own thing. Yeah. So I guess the first, I was out of film school. So that doesn't count. I was out of film school. And then you're trying to get paid to do the thing you just paid a lot of money to learn how to do. Yeah. Right. I had a very seminal meeting with a guy named Chuck Russell. He was a, a director. He's a director. He, back in the day, he did the remake of The Blob with Frank Darabont. Yeah. Um, and he directed The Mask and Eraser. Um, I think his first movie was Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3. Um, so I had a meeting. I was temping on the Fox lot. I had a meeting uh, with him in the, in the Nakatomi Plaza from I don't know if you know Die Hard. Yes. So the building. You're not the first person so, to say this recently, actually. I'm, I'm getting a full yeah. flashback. Uh, I'll tell you after. Okay, great. Can't wait. <laughs> um, so I'm in that building. So I'm already, I think, uh, hey, I've, I've made it. I'm in the Nakatomi building. And then uh, we had a long talk about, it was to be his assistant. It was an interview I got. And we had a long talk about movies, what kind of movies I wanted to make, what kind of movies he makes. And then we were both sort of cinephiles. I had just been in film school for three years. So you watch a thousand movies. So I had what to talk about. And then he said, I'm not, I don't want to hire you as my assistant. I don't want you like picking up my dry cleaning. You should go and make movies. You should go do that thing that you so passionately want to do. So I was like, so I don't have the job. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> um, <laughs> cause I, cause I could use the job. So he said, <laughs> go, go and direct whatever you can get your hands on. Like get, direct, commercials, music videos, documentaries, industrials, traffic plays, whatever. doesn't matter. Wake up in the morning, call yourself a director. So that's what I did. I like talked friends into, um, I had a friend who was doing like marketing for a software company. So I was like, let's shoot a PSA <laughs> for your software yeah. company. 
Like you give me a certain amount of money, like, you know, we were talking about five or $6,000. I'll take 400 to like pay some rent and eat something and then we'll make the movie. So we made like, so I made like, I don't know, five or six of those where it was like Beverly Hills Chamber of Commerce. I did a piece on the beauty industry. I did a piece for the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles wow. <laughs> uh, about a disease called retinoblastoma, which is, it's a cancer in the eye. Yeah. And it, all it would take to, uh, to reduce the incidence of retinoblastoma in infants is to do an early detection, make it a state mandate, like early detection. So we made this video to be played at the state legislature in California to help pass an early detection for retinoblastoma. And it was part of the effort to uh, make it make it part of it, which it is now a part of it. So wow. I don't know the statistics now, but it was great to be a part of something that actually did something. Saved children. Saved the children. So that was cool. And then and, and the other... Uh, realm of things. I did a piece with a friend of mine from film school, Randy Olson, who's a great author, read his books, about the wastewater treatment plant in Playa del Rey, which is basically where all of our poop goes. And then it's all about this anaerobic processing and that they passed legislation to go seven feet, seven miles out into the ocean instead of three miles out, which makes me more comfortable. So... Um, <laughs> So uh, that was fun. And then all of that led to somebody, do you want to, do, am I telling you too long? No, story? you're actually, I'll tell you okay. after why this is so valuable, but go on. This is okay. great. This is great. Okay. It's almost over. Anyway, so then <laughs> so a friend of mine from Brandeis knew another guy who went to Brandeis who's older than us, who ran a production company. And he was looking for someone to do a piece on the 50th anniversary of Brandeis. Which I just saw today. You saw searching, searching for Alison Porch, Porchnik. Yeah, really. Just today, Jesus, I, I will say this: Stan, which is our episode one mentor, has told uh -huh. me that, to yeah, watch Stan. this a million times, and I, for some reason, just kept pushing it off. I like had it open in my browser and never would watch it. And today, I was like, I have to watch it. I'm interviewing Jason. It's so good, and I'm so sad that I didn't watch it up until now. It's it's fantastic. It's funny, and it's okay. Oh, anyway, go on. So so, that, so that's well, that's that. Well, that was, ago. At that point so that was so that was the, that point and wow. um and that so you know so the story behind that was they wanted me to interview the entertainment alumni uh, from brandeis right which include which included at the time and it's only expanded yeah from there but at the time it included deborah messing who yeah. was on a show called ned and stacy will and grace hadn't even happened wow. yet Stuart damon from general hospital gates mcfadden from star trek Marta Kaufman and David Crane, who created Friends, uh, Tony Goldwyn, the list goes on, Damon Lee, Ron West. Who's our mentor this week? His episode just dropped this week with Damon Lee. Right, and Stan. And a couple right, weeks right. ago, we had um, Ron West. Ron West was on that, that film. So there you go. All right. So you got my whole cast. <laughs> That's my goal. There you go. There's a list of, there's a list of people you can call. I, they're you, still, they're all I wrote, around. I yeah, took okay. some notes. <laughs> don't, don't feel like I didn't take any notes. Those are my, my future mentors on this podcast. <laughs> oh, Marshall Herskovitz, who's brilliant. brilliant. That guy's brilliant. great. He's fantastic. Yeah, really. So yeah, so I had the stupid idea that, because I remember that Woody Allen had mentioned Brandeis in... A few movies, I think. Yeah, I think Sisters so. Sisters and uh, and Annie Hall, right? Right. And there's another one because Carrie Fisher went to Brandeis in uh, Hannah and Her Sisters, and he suspects that Carol Kane went to Brandeis because he says to her, he says "Let me to guess, her. your left-wing liberal oh, socialist so summer camp father with the best John Drawings, Brandeis University," and so she good. said, "I love being I love being reduced to a social a social stereotype." Yeah. Right. <laughs> Which is so the foundation anyway, of this whole film. That's right. So it was, it was called Searching for Alison Porchnik. So everybody kind of played. They gave me the sort of pithy, you know, the brevity of what's great about Brandeis. And then they helped me sort of find this fictional character, wow. which ultimately led me to Ellen. So I wrote him a letter. He, he agreed to do it. And so it was me and my sound guy and my camera guy. And we sat in a room with Woody Allen for like seven minutes and recorded this thing. Um, it was weird. And then that led to gigs at... Cause then I had a calling card, like that piece yeah. was cool. And it was like, it was, it wasn't about poop and it wasn't about the Beverly Hills beauty industry. It wasn't eyes, depressing about children with cancer. It was just sort of fun and like poppy and, and good. Yeah. So anyway, that led to a thing at 
the promotion department at NBC, which became sort of a second film school. Um, it was a group of us, and we were in this sort of pod with no windows, uh, which would be terrible in a pandemic. Um, <laughs> Uh, but it was called NBC 2000 and it was right at the turn of the century and we were going to like reinvent promotion and there were like seven or eight of us and we just stayed in this pod and we competed with the promotional department, which was a separate sort of thing. And it was this funny, like, you know, see people in the hall and it was a like microcosm for Hollywood. Um, wow. so um, so then, you know, that group of people, we all supported each other cause we're all at the beginning of our yeah. careers and we're still in touch like if there's anything i i would say to any, someone sort of young is like find that group early that like even if you lose touch even if you don't work together after a certain point like you were that pod that always supported each other because you're going to need you're going to need that later and yeah. so what did you guys do at nbc 2000 promotions for like other shows essentially i mean i heard it's promotional based right yeah so we would pitch to uh sort of the funny spots or clip spots or shoot spots with the cast of the new shows. Um, and we ended up long, we did, let's see, we were, when I joined, it was the last season of friends, the fifth season of Frasier. Uh, it was just shoot me. Will and Grace was just starting. Wow. Um, the West wing had just started third watch. Um, this is a good, you know, this is a good roster of TV. Yeah. We also, for like three years, we had the Olympics, which were starting to happen right. every two years, and the and the NBA. Somewhere in an attic somewhere is 16 millimeter Bolex footage that I have of Michael Jordan playing Philadelphia. And I'm sitting on the court, take like rolling on this old oh 16 God. millimeter Bolex, shooting thick 36 frames per second. So it's got this magical, like it's just Michael Jordan, just like in fluidity. I have wow. to find it. Oh, yeah, you have to find that. That's that's <laughs> yeah. priceless. I mean, I just saw the the last dance. So like, I'm a little on Michael Jordan right now. Like, sure. Yeah. yeah. So how did that lead to, because I think your next thing was the first thing you directed, right? So when was, I think that led to behind the camera, the unauthorized Well, I had story. to talk, I had to talk uh, the promo, sorry. I had to talk the promo de department into letting me direct. That was the first time I directed for, for money that w I yeah. wasn't like, it wasn't my money. Yeah. You so know how'd you I mean? do that? How'd you pull like, that off? I don't know. You know, again, it was it was being in a very encouraging environment that really helped. You know, it was like we all felt supportive of of one another. So you just you would pitch the craziest ideas because you felt like like even if even if they were like that's insane, get out of my office. Like the guys who ran a promo, you'd go back and they'd be like, dude, that's a good thing. That was a good promo. <laughs> like you'd always like, <laughs> you'd always feel good um, no matter what. So oh. you were unafraid to pitch anything. So wow. we pitched um, the one campaign that I, I, um, I, I loved was a campaign I did with a DP I've worked with many times named Byron Shaw. He shot the passage in the exorcist right? Um, just recently. So back, this is 20 years ago, he and I did this piece where we went behind the scenes on every show and we shot on that Bolex. That was what that NDA thing was yeah. about. On that Bolex, on these Bolex, old Bolex cameras, we shot like reversal stock and we shot these beautiful, like they felt sort of, they had a nostalgia to them. Yeah. And we made this campaign of what it was like to get ready for the new season. Yeah. You know, it was like a whole, yeah. And, uh, and then HBO copied my campaign and I was like, well, that's, you know, flattery is the sincerest form of flattery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So, I mean, you got to direct. How was that experience for directing like something like that for the first time? I mean, you directed. Well, before, they, wouldn't let, in a they wouldn't let me direct at first. They only let me co-direct. So okay. I did that. And then I graduated to directing. I, I loved it. I mean, you know, just being in that, place where you're you're deciding on you're leading the audience's eye you know what yeah. i mean like that's what's exciting and you're you're sort of sharing something that is is how do you say this is willing to be told like there's so many stories that people aren't willing to tell because they haven't accepted them yet whatever yeah. it's right and like so whatever you're seeing is something that was willing to be told so then it's just a question of whether it's worth watching um, <laughs> But, you know, that was like, that was very exciting. That was always exciting was that part of storytelling is like, you know, what are we leading the audience to? I think it was Hitchcock who said that, that the camera, what did he say? He's like, you're the conductor and the audience is the orchestra. 
Oh yeah, right? Tech, that makes sense. It's not. It's not. It's not the camera and the actors and all the thing, all the strings you're pulling. It's like what you're ultimately pulling is, you know, hopefully what what people's experience is of what you're doing. Does oh, that make yeah. sense? Yeah, and so they're part of it more than just like watching it. Mm-hmm. Right? Like they're interacting. It's still, like they're part of the whole experience. Yeah, there's a contract and you're like, yeah. you're like, are you, yeah. Do you feel like you're in good hands? Are you coming along for the ride? Let's yeah. go. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. So you did the first thing was the the Three's Company, right? The unauthorized story of Three's Company TV? Like the TV so that movie? was, yeah, that was the lo- first long form narrative I did. It was just trial by fire. I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. How is it? Well, then how is that experience? Just like being able to just kind of play by your figure it out as you go along. It was, it was amazing. I mean, you know, when you have a movie that's about something and sometimes you don't, and it's much harder, like when you have a central idea. Yeah. When a movie has a theme that you can sort of act as a riverbed through which you can make every decision, it's much more fun. And it's actually easier because yeah. everything starts, everything makes sense. Every decision is either right or, or, it's, or it ain't. And you kind of know it because of the central idea. So the central idea of this movie was, you know, that expression, what is it? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yes. So this is, it's also true with greed, mm-hmm. right? And with yeah. ego. And right. so this movie was about like how certain people's egos and their greed, you know, just corrupted a situation. So right. it was about sort of behind the scenes of Three's Company and the the drama and the falling out and the tears between Suzanne Summers and Joyce DeWitt and John Ritter. Right. So, um, and it was ultimately a very tragic story. Yeah. Um, Cause you know, the show kind of like goes through Chrissy's and it sort of loses its, I mean, it was always funny and it was it always had a yeah. good heart, which is why it lasted. Cause it was like the laughter that came out of that show was amazing, but there was this other stuff that, we tainted it almost uh, yeah and so we sort of told that story and tried to tell it as it's hard to do biopics because you're you're just trying to get the emotional truth right you're going to get all the details wrong and you're never going to make anybody happy but you you try to the blessing that came out of it was that the actor who played john ritter met john ritter john ritter saw the movie said that's exactly what happened wow Um, and then they became great friends until he passed and it's just such a great memory like he and i have that like i mean him mostly but i mean he sort of shared that experience with me and i was around when it happened and it was just something we still like reflect on and go all right that was there's something something came out of that yeah that sounds i mean special i mean you know something on a personal level it's an experience you know not just the movie yeah yeah. And so how'd you get the next thing? How'd you like go from well, that, that was successful. to be able and then, to, yeah. you know, you know, then it was like, let me make an offer you can't refuse, you know, <laughs> like, and I got, now you got to do something you don't like. Right. <laughs> right. And we'll pay you. And then, then, you know, it's like, and then you start to get into the system where it's like two for them, one for me. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you, you just want to work. So yeah. you're like, screw it. I'll do, I'll shoot anything. Yeah. Right. You know, so how did you go from directing to producing more? Well, I think it's a natural evolution. I mean, I think if you if you're worth your salt in as a director, you're producing, right? You're making decisions that are are working with both the line producer and the creative producers, right? To to facilitate and execute and bring to life this thing. Yeah. So, and you have to put that hat on anyway because you're you're never going to have Christopher Nolan's resources. Or at least I'm not. <laughs> um, so, so I have to work within a smaller parameter in terms of, you know, how much, how much, how much money I can spend. And that's all producing in terms of deciding what location you're going to choose and the order of events of how you're going to shoot things. And do you need that crane? And, you know, so you're constantly slashing, slashing, slashing. If that's not producing, I don't know. What it is. So do you, do you think um, it's much easier for a director to become a producer of the film or of a TV show than it is for a producer to also then try directing? Yes. I think that yeah. what you, wait, what you just said, the producer trying directing is harder because directing yeah. is a whole other, you don't naturally direct when you produce yeah. directing is its own sort of field of view of skill. Yeah. Um, and if you're, I mean, you get, you see it and you witness it as a producer, as an actor, as a thing, but unless you're doing it, you really don't know what it is. Yeah. I just, I've talked to a few people now, like who are producers and it is, I think very difficult for them. I mean, even Stan Brooks in our first episode was talking about like that transition transition to trying to direct. He said it was hard, even though he had been producing so many, stu- like so many films, it was hard to be given that chance to direct. And, and you're right. I mean, cause I think it's a natural 
thing for if you're directing to produce as well because you're a part of the whole thing but it's still interesting that you know that was just a natural progression for you yeah i mean it felt like an extension of the job and and so and then it turned out to be something i was i was good at which i didn't know i didn't know i had no like ambition to do it yeah i I didn't really like it just it sort of happened and then it was like oh i i enjoy the logistics like Mm. i enjoy the part of like making the schedule and and sort of helping to decide on the diplomacy that gets decisions made yeah like you know that part of it is it was more fun than i i didn't know know, like you don't know what you don't know right (laughs) it's true makes sense and how much do you work with the writers on like a, a given tv show for instance I mean, I, I like to have a great relationship with the writer. I like to, you know, there's a thing called a tone meeting on a, on television shows where yeah. you sit with the uh, writer and, and the AD and um, I'm trying to think who else, you know, whoever I guess wants to be in the meeting, sometimes the DP just so, and the editors on the call, like, so just everybody kind of like walks through the script that talks about both the director's intentions and what the writer, mm. what the writer, you know, had in, in their head. And then you kind of try to come up with a, an execution that, that works. Um, and so, and I always like to say that the tone meeting for me is like the second the writer and I say hello, like we're con we're all, all we should be talking about is the script. Yeah. So, so yeah, on that level, I, I probably annoy them because I like them. (laughs) Good. No, I'm sure they appreciate it. So in that way, I was going to ask you, because obviously you've directed so much and you've directed in mid season, the middle of seasons, you've directed a lot of pilots. I wanted to ask you specifically about the latter. So I know you direct a lot of pilots. You directed the pilot for Andy Barker, PI, the Eastman's Franklin and Bash, Heart of Dixie, Cult, The Passage. Why, you know, why pilots? Why do you think that that's been such a, you know, thing for you? And what do you like about shooting the pilot of a new show? I like, well, okay, I'll tell you what I like in theory and at its, and at its, and I like what, like a pilot when it's at its best yeah. is, um, you know, you're a filmmaker in the true sense of the, it's the closest thing you're going to get to being a filmmaker, a true, like, uh, I don't want to say auteur because that word is pretentious, but there I said it. Um, but, you know, someone who is more an or, an author or, of the film, yeah. like you're, yeah, like you're, you're creating, like I said, more details of what the audience is seeing you're deciding right. on the the design of the space the 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 line of the camera the orientation the speed at which the actors talk you're you're making you're really creating the 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 world right you know on an episodic you're doing you're also doing a lot it's just a very different skill you're 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 spending most of your energy on blocking actors and cameras to create the most dynamic version of the world that's already been created. Mm, yeah. Does that make sense? It does make sense. So you have to, so like, you know, sometimes it's great to walk in and do an episodic and, you know, sort of pull off a magic trick within yeah. sort of these parameters. Yeah. And sometimes it's great to go, Oh, here's a script. No one's ever, no one knows what it looks like right. or feels like. So I'll be a part of that. No, yeah, and you're creating the parameters, yeah. if you will, for someone else. Right. So it's interesting. I mean, a lot of actors listen to this podcast. And so as an actor, I feel like this just came to me. When we get an audition for something, right, we always are told, even if it's a new show, research the people who are making it. Research the directors so you can get an idea for their tone and their style because then you watch, you know, probably it's going to be reflected in whatever new piece that they're doing in some small way, right? At least have something going in. If that writer is, you know, Shonda Rhimes, there's going to be a certain sort of tone and, you know, quickness and same with Amy Sherman Palladino, that kind of thing. What is your style? How would you feel like there's something that you do that is different than other people? That's an interesting question. Um, I, you know, for me, it's something I'm, I'm constantly discovering. And I'm also, I have the sort of blessing and the curse of being very curious so yeah. I, I don't, I get a little bored if I stay in one genre or like, you know, one thing. And I also get bored with just the source material. Like I've seen all the movies and now I've sort of created this thing. And now maybe it's a part of the lexicon. Maybe it's not. Yeah. Um, but I did what I could. And then I want to go off and do like a period piece in Brooklyn, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, I, I just finished a, um, so I did back to back. I did a, a demon possession family story. And then I did an apocalyptic vampire story. And now I'm doing a gay coming out John Hughes story. And so I'm feeling, you know, I just feel like 
I will, I don't want to say I'm a clinician, but I, I will study the sort of tropes visually mm. of the genre, find something that crosses genres. So it's not just the same old thing. Right. Yeah. I'll give you, I'll give you an example of one of the films that I teach in one of my classes is Angel Heart. I don't okay. know if you've seen it. 1987. Mickey it. Rourke, very pretty Mickey Rourke, directed by Alan Parker, who just passed away. And it takes a procedural, just a regular detective procedural, and it mixes with the occult supernatural, and mm. which had never really been done before like that. And suddenly you've got this new thing. So I guess if there was something I look to do, it's, it's, I'm attracted to projects that take a thing and and then and then you know mix in the ingredients of another thing yeah so that you can create something that people haven't really experienced before yeah and and you do that with the tools of the tropes of the whatever but then also you don't want to rely on the tropes too much because then it'll just be the same old thing so you take take an anchor of the tropes and then you kind of that's when your creativity comes on that other part does that make sense it does make sense yeah do you get inspired to be like, okay, this is what we should do now? Is that something that happens on set? Well, sure. If you, yeah, I mean, I think I, I always say that if you pave a path through the material before going in, before you're on the day, yeah, um, then then what you've done is you're not stuck with what you planned. All you, what you've done is you've set intentions, right? And because you've set intentions, when Christoph Kozlowski calls it a thousand inconveniences, that's what you're going to face every shooting day. Yeah. So when you get to the thousand inconveniences and you can't do all the shit you planned, mm. you set your intentions. Now that's when you get to play because you're like, Oh, I know what I'm supposed to be doing here so I can change it here. And it's still the same or it's yeah. even better. Yeah, no, it's similar to acting. We try to say, like, you know, be as prepared as possible, be as off book as possible so that when you're on the day of, you could just play and you could just take in whatever's happening in the moment, be really present and just have a good time. And if you're so focused still on the lines and there's no play, there's no inspiration, there's no creativity, it's just all like right brain. The rabbi once said to me, um, the cost of wisdom is commitment. Mm. meaning meaning like you're in a valley and you've got all these mountains to climb and you're like, I want to climb that one. I want to climb that one. And I want to climb that one. The only way you get to know one of the mountains and become an expert on the mountain and get to the top of the mountain is to pick one. Right. Yeah. And that's what the, that's what the prepping is. It's just climb the mountain so that when you're, when you get to set, you already have a vantage point. Yeah. Right. And you know, the pitfalls of, and all the mistakes that you would make just when you were just starting to think about things. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I like that. I like the visual of that. All right. I guess what I, we're going to have a couple questions I have to ask you, but I would like to start with what is the biggest piece of advice you give to anyone starting out in entertainment or have been doing it for a little while? Just what would you get? What kind of advice would you give them? I would say two things. I would say find something that helps you know where your center is. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of rejection and there's a, if you're thin, like, you have to be vulnerable and open to be an artist, but you don't want to be so vulnerable and so open that you're crushed by the business, right? So whatever it is, I, don't know, what, I mean, people find their, their gods wherever. So who am I to, to say anything? <laughs> so, you know, find your thing, find that place where you, where it doesn't hurt you as much, where it doesn't affect you as much. And you get to, I guess this is my second point, you get to keep going right? And you get to push boundaries and you get to try things. Mm. Um, and you like, you always, I, I'm always trying to go a little further than what I've seen just because that's, this is going to sound so pithy, but that's like where the truth is. It's like, it's on the other side of that thing that you've already seen. Like that's, mm. that was yesterday's news, yesterday's truth. What's, yeah. what's, what are you saying now? Right. Does that make sense? That and I think that's sense. how you tap into it's how you tap into zeitgeist. It's how you like you sort of get into that wave. Is you you, you got to go a little bit further. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Yeah. You can't it, do that if you're yeah. broken and vulnerable. And I mean, no. We can sit here and argue about whether or not suffering is necessary to be an artist, but yeah. I don't know that it's relevant. Whether it is or not, you don't want to be so beat up by the rejection. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. I, I think that's what I, in some small way, try to tell people who are even younger than me is, is that, is a version of that. You said it way more eloquently than I would, but it's this idea of have at least something else. That's what I say. I always have something else that you can do or that you love or that you get joy from. So when all that stuff hits you, you're like, but I have this, 
and I love this and this is what makes me happy and that's not going to hurt me quite as much because I, I just feel like it's it's inevitable right especially at the beginning there's just inevitable rejection and uh, I just can't let that uh, and, and at the you. end yeah there's rejection the whole way I mean oh, okay, the, auditions good. <laughs> never, the, the audition's never over you're always you always have to step up and do the work uh wait you reminded me of something now I don't remember. The having something oh, else that you love on the side, like something that that uh, gives you joy so that when things come at you, you're... Yeah, yeah. No, I, I can't go right. It's like no one worries. of those thoughts yeah. that just like... That's fine. Know, but that's right. one of the reasons why, I mean, we can go back for just a quick second as to what I really loved about the whole PSA story and then going into the Brandeis film is that you were doing. I think a lot of people consistently wait for people to give them opportunities. And especially at the beginning, a lot of it's like, what can I do to create and do what I love doing right now? And you kind of did that. You just, you did, you did stuff and you kept doing it and you kept finding those things to do, it felt like. And then it kept, you know, putting yourself in a place where you could meet more people in the industry. But I just, yeah, think a lot and, of people I, don't and I would do that. say, I would say as much as a self starter as I was, I still look back and wish I had self started in other ways. Like, <laughs> like, you know, you should always just be self-starting or you're going to look back and go, shit, I didn't even, I didn't start to self-start. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I have a couple of questions from other people too, and I'll ask a couple of them. One was from oh, Stan. Oh, yeah. Stan Brooks gave me a couple of questions he thought I should ask you. I don't think he wanted me to say it was from him, but I think it's great. That's, so, that's hilarious. I know. So <laughs> what, So what, it's so funny. I emailed him and I was like, I'm seeing, I'm, I'm talking to Jason in a couple hours. I was like, if you have any suggestions on things that you might know or things I should ask. And he was like, got it. He sent me a couple. Okay. Yeah, so one he, knows said, where, he knows where the bodies are buried. Yeah, yeah I think they were, they're pretty good. I think that they're good. Okay. So Early in your career, you were hired primarily for light drama and comedy, and then you started doing horror and became exclusive in that as a director in that, like that kind of director. Is it hard in the TV series and movie business to not be typecast? Very. Yeah, there was a time where the folks at one studio who I had done some comedies for were like, oh, that guy does comedies. And when their dramas came up, they were like, that guy does comedies. And then there was another uh, studio and network that I had done dramas for that I tried to get on comedies. And they were like, they were like, you're not funny. So, <laughs> um, so, and you know, you, you, you have two, there's two ways to go in this business. The first is what I call like the Ratso Rizzo way, which is, you know, after Dustin Hoffman did The Graduate, he could have taken another role just like that. Yeah. And sort of made a, made like a niche for himself as that guy for a while as he aged. Yeah. But instead he was like, I'm going to do something so completely unrecognizable to that, that you'll have to keep up with me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and and I'm not saying I've done anything like that. I'm just saying it was an inspiration to sort of move around and to like kind of duck and, 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 and go, all right, what's next? But like I was saying, it's a little bit of a curse too, because nobody knows where to put you, mm. you know? Yeah, it's difficult. But if you, that's what you want, then like anything else, you know, it has to be, you have to set that intention and, and make it so. I heard an interview uh, with Matthew McConaughey the other day that he was saying that he kept getting typecast in his romantic comedy leads and it was doing really well for him for, him for a while. And then at some point he was like, enough, I, I want to do something else, but he wouldn't get any offers for dramas or anything serious. So he had to keep turning things down for a while. And he turned down a $15 million rom-com rom -com, where he was like so tempted to say yes, but he was like, I turned it down and it took a little while. And then all of a sudden the offers kept coming for the ones that I actually wanted. And that's when he started getting the the dramas and the Oscar and all that stuff. So I guess it's similar. Somebody said, yeah, someone said to me early on, uh, sometimes all you have left is no. Yeah. Right. And I didn't yeah. understand it until I started saying no. And I was like, oh, that's how you pave the way to the something else is you, 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 ha you have to say no. So yeah, same thing in in Sally Field's memoir where she was, they thought she was Gidget and she was like, yeah. you know, she was all cute and she was, she wanted Norma Ray so bad and she, she couldn't get it. And then she did one of those things like where you storm into the room as Norma Ray. Yeah. She's like, God damn I'm it, like, I'm, I'm Norma Ray. I, <laughs> give me the role. She's a character. Yeah. I like her. This is also from Stan. I know that you live a good part of the year outside LA and Hollywood. Do you think it's important for a filmmaker to leave the bubble of Hollywood to have different perspectives in the world and society at large? 
Yes, I do. I didn't do it for 20 years and mm. doing it has, has made my life a lot better. So even if, even if you got to go Airbnb, B and B in Ojai, you know, whatever, you just have to get out of L if you're, especially if you're in Los Angeles, which can yeah. get very uh, myopic in its oppression. Um, you have to get out sometimes and, and just like breathe different air. Yeah, I think that's super important. And I would argue that that's, that's part of what I find at my center is just to not, not be so wrapped up in it. Yeah. yeah. No, I think it's important too, especially I think it's specifically in LA. I mean, New York obviously is, is its own bubble of, of crazy and, and whatever. But in, in LA, I just feel like everyone is in it. Everyone's in that industry, you know? And so it's, it's yeah, very, it feels very myopic sometimes. Like you go there and you're You just can like, go to a million places in New York where... Yeah. Um, you won't be sitting someone next to someone at a cafe and overhear them talking about their second act trouble. Right. Right. Yeah. No. Whereas I mean, like within, yeah. yeah, within the center of LA, you're, you're, that's what you're going to sit yeah. next to, which is fine. That's just part of being in it. Um, but yeah. it's also nice to, you know, get no, out. I, I, I understand that. That's probably one of the Escape reasons why from LA. I stayed here. <laughs> Okay, so I did have a question because you obviously worked with amazing people and specifically worked with one of my favorite screenwriters of all time is Aaron Sorkin. So were you able to interact with him on the newsroom very much? I mean, how was that? How was working with him specifically? Because I know you worked on the West Wing, but it was, I think it was after he already left. But he worked, you worked on the newsroom with him. I did. So my first, the first thing that um, I cut this um, uh, piece for the 75th anniversary of NBC and Scott Sassa, who was the president of NBC at the time, wanted Aaron to see this thing because it was a 75-year retrospective on three screens at Radio City Music Hall. And they were playing simultaneously. So you were like seeing basically the history of, of television until it sort of started to fracture, but the history yeah. of the sort of those sort of three networks. Right. And, right. Um, so you're releasing a third of television yeah. um, over 75 years. Yeah. And, um, and it just, it was very nostalgic and it brought you into your whole life. Cause we've all, we've all seen all of those shows. So yeah. it like gave you a place. time, And um, so it was sort of self-reflective and Aaron loved it. And he, so he was amenable when, I went to him for a mockumentary I was doing and asked him to sing Surrey with a Fringe on top because he was, I knew he was a musical theater major at Syracuse. Yeah. So, and he did it and he was awesome. And in fact, my composer, um, and he just did it acapella from his head. And then I did, I had my composer score it later, like with a post score. Wow. And, um, and he said of all the, and there were like 26 NBC actors in it and, and Aaron and um, and my composer said, he said, Aaron has the best pitch of all of them. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah, and I think some of the people that were in that particular sketch, I think, like, didn't, I mean, some of the, they were big heavy hitters in that who, who know how to sing. Oh, yeah. So, no, they were yeah. great, great singers. Yeah. But, you know, he has a precision about him that I guess translates into his writing. And then we did Newsroom. He was lovely. He was very, very supportive of my take on the script. And um, uh, when he came to set, he he was uh, very helpful. Um, and and he was cool. I, I, I thought it was he was a great collaborator. Great. Oh, good. Yeah. He's one of my favorites. So I wanted, I wanted it to be a positive look. Okay, cool. Yeah. So congrats on the renewal of obviously of love Victor, right? That's a big deal. That just was announced recently, right? Uh, yes. Uh, Hulu season two, love Victor. Yes. So how's yes. shooting the second season? How's that, how's that going? Especially in the midst of COVID and everything going on right now. Well, the COVID part of it is surreal. I mean, it's a very dystopian thriller. Um, yeah. You know, there's, there's so many signs everywhere. I forget to read them. Um, so uh, yeah, it's, it's strange and we're making our way through and we're communicating about the, all the protocols and we're improving them as we go. This is super boring, isn't it? No, it's um, not. No, this is what we want to hear, especially for, especially for people. <laughs> no, because I'm, I'm doing the same thing. I'm asking everyone I know who has been on set since all this has happened. Like, how's it going? How's it go like, what's the protocols there? So this is, this is important. A lot of people yeah. want to know this stuff. Well, you know, we there's the zone system. If you read the IATSE yeah. SAG, you know, AMPTP agreement, um, 
uh, DJ, a bunch of unions. Um, um, but if you read that agreement, uh, which they spent the summer putting together, you know, it's very clear sort of, this is the logic of, of where people are going to be and how close people are going to be to each other. Um, and we keep improving it because I think what happens is, and I'm sure this has happened to you, you go to a backyard party during the pandemic and you're like, I'm going to be safe. I'm going to wear my mask. And 10 minutes in, your mask is off. And then you're like, I'll keep six feet apart. And then you forget. You like, yeah. you know, whether you have a drink or not, you just you just want to be a human being. Um, so we have to constantly, we basically called it the sort of there's something on your face theory. We've agreed that like if, if somebody in our office had something on their face, you would say, hey, you have something on your face without a second thought. Right. And so we're, we want to approach like COVID that same way, which is guys take a step apart. Like you forget. And yeah. you know, I mean, everybody's wearing their masks. There's mask, hundred percent mask compliance, but it's, um, but sometimes we just forget and we huddle around a diagram and we're like, guys, like anyone can say it. There's something on your face. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have one friend who was on a show the other day and she was telling me about that particular show and that the, the set where she was like, the director was like in a completely different room. So whenever the director was giving her direction, like someone from one room had to come talk to like the producer in the other room and then they talked and then they, you know, like it was, it was very sort of a lot of distance between people, but almost in some ways too dis too much distance because she really didn't get to meet or interact with anybody. I don't, I don't know how I'll do that on set. I mean, we haven't started shooting yet, but okay. from what I he hear, and I bought one of those shields that, you know, is on yeah. your neck. Mm-hmm. And goes up, so you look like a, a dog that just had surgery. So I have to wear one of those if I'm near the actors, because mm -hmm. they uh, so they often won't have masks on. So we want right. to kind of du double protect everybody. Yeah. Otherwise, I'll be at my monitor. You know, it's going to be tricky because I like to be near the actors when I direct. I like yeah. to just be there with them. And, and so that when I give a piece of direction, not everybody in the room is hearing it, because sometimes I'm trying yeah. to get to some, like, emotional thing. Of course where I got to give the actor like a moment to just do, do it themselves and find it without everybody watching. Um, and uh, that's, that's going to be tricky because, you know, I don't know that I'm, I don't know that we have the, the luxury of that many sort of in and outs from mm -hmm. a COVID standpoint. Like I'm just going to have to choose my battles. Yeah. Man, it's going to be fun. Um, is yeah. it more so, but otherwise, oh, yeah. the scripts are, the scripts are amazing. The cast is I, I'm super sure. psyched. I know. I'm sure it's going to be amazing. Debbie Downer over no, here. No, no, not at all. I have a couple. I just, I these are things people want to know, especially like, like, is it has it been hard to cast a role with like with um? It just it sounded like I said casserole to cast a role I like, like a in these casserole. conditions. Yeah, right. Uh, no, people want to work. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not. I, don't find the, I actually find the casting kind of very focused and, and oh, finding, finding really good people and good. I'm excited, excited about how the cast is expanding. Good, good. I'm glad to hear that. No, we like it on our end, I think, because, you know, you just kind of are in your own space and you wait for the audition to come up and it's all on Zoom. So it's all on camera anyway, but you can kind of make your own setup. So I think it's... What do you do for eyelines on Zoom? I find it very tricky. It's odd. Yeah. So most of the time I, I really try to ask whomever I'm talking to about it, being like, where are you looking? Where are you seeing me? But I try to keep eye level with the camera and then I'll just look at one of the corners of my computer. Okay, that's smart. All right, good. But I know do, some do people you, who put little like. Do you have stickers. a piece of tape? Do you have a, yeah. Not not tape, but like even I've I've heard someone put like it was really great advice. Put a sticker like of a face or something right at the corner, and then they can talk just. It's almost like they're talking to something as opposed to like a piece of tape. Is but, it like a like a daily affirmation? Like you're doing great. <laughs> you're you're nailing this right now. <laughs> Nothing too distracting. That's funny. It uh, says like excellence is never an accident. Yeah. <laughs> Just like some sort of real like <laughs> some mantra, pithy, some pithy yeah. mantra that you could just hold on to the entire time. You're doing great. You got something, this. Something Joan Crawford said. Yeah. Um. So how about how's it feel to work on like a streaming platform as opposed to a network now? Because you've had such experience uh, with both. Yeah, I mean they're both great. Uh, you know, you get to make movies, so that's cool. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I find that the the there's a a little more a dedication to curation on streaming. Mm. Like they, they don't want to create the show with you. They want to help you create your show. Yeah. Is that, like there's more of a sort of a filmmaker voice uh, I find, um, yeah. which is, which is fine. I mean, there's a place for, 
for all of it. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, the, 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 the broadcast stuff admittedly is, is obviously less of a niche audience. You're, you're going for everybody. Yeah. You're looking for all quadrants. Right. Um, so, and that's a, that's a, a challenge in itself to sort of know where that sort of sweet spot lives. Yeah. Especially if you more prefer like, you know, very specific genre stuff. Mm, yeah. um, right. Or really marginalized kind of stuff. It's, yeah. it's hard. It, that's the hardest I find to jump back and forth because you're, it's, it's not hard to jump from like horror to comedy or like genre to genre. It's yeah. hard to jump from something that's incredibly like raw and honest and truthful and like uncomfortable to something that's really, really comfortable and just enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. And then back and forth. And then, and then back and forth. Yeah. yeah. What's a project that you really want to do one day? Or do you want to do more film at some point? Or like, what do you see yourself in the near future? Is there a project you really, really want to direct? And it's kind of just like been there in the back of your head. And you're like, can't wait to can't wait to, for that one one day. Yeah, there's two of those. Well, there's three. Oh, nice. Uh, I'm, yeah, it's, it spreads me too thin, and so I should pick. I should probably pick one. So there's three. I'm excited about all of them. You know, one is more political. One is more. Um, one's terrifying, and and one is romantic. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's hard to choose because I, I like I like all those things. Are they all like original ideas? Are there something specific that you're thinking of, or you're just kind of they're like all, any one of those? No, they're all my. I mean, I wrote them all. I'm, so you wrote uh, them. So that was going to be yeah, the next so, thing I was going to ask. Do you write as well? Are you going to write? You know. I, yeah, I do. I'm writing. I'm, That's I, great. I, what is it? First thing, first step of being a writer is call yourself a writer. A hundred percent. Yeah. So yeah, uh, yeah. I've been writing. It's been great. I love it. It's a. I love the process. That's great. And so, when do you think you want to put that up? Um, I need more time day. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I'd like to be pitching one of them in the new year and then have a script script for another. And then, you know, in the next five years they're done and then I'm moving on to something else. That's exciting. See, that's the you best know. part about this type of thing is that you get to do one project and move on to something different. You know, God bless, knock on wood. Yes. Health, that keeps all going. Right. Everyone's healthy. Yeah. Everyone's, you know, moving all forward. Right. Yeah. You're, health, you're healthy. Your family's healthy. Everybody's yes. healthy. Okay. Yes. So this I'll just, all I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with uh, just one yeah, please. quick story, which was I was, uh, I was at a screening. I was this, I think this was, this was even before the uh, Brandeis movie. Um, and uh, Quincy Jones was at the screening and we were at the sort of cocktail hour after, and we were both sort of by the meatballs. <laughs> and, um, and he, he just, he said, he said, how's it going? And I was in like a weird, like vulnerable place because I, I like something happened with a film I made and mm. it was, it didn't go well. You know, it just didn't, it didn't get into where I wanted to get in or it got some bad feedback. I'm, I don't, I probably blocked it out. <laughs> so, and I kind of like said something to that effect. Like I told him like, you know, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> like you asked, so I'll tell you. Yeah. And, um, and he took me by the shoulder. I find like older men, I'll probably start doing it soon. They, they, should, like, to yeah. take, they like to take you by the arm. You're not allowed to touch anybody anymore. No. Um, they like to take you by the arm. <laughs> and they like to say, and they squeeze your arm to get your attention. And he took my arm and he said, he said, don't you ever give up. He said, you keep going. Wow. And I was like, I was like, okay, Quincy Jones just told me not to give up. So I guess I'll do what he says. Oh my so, God. So that was uh, that was a nice moment, and it was like uh, okay, I took it with me. That's beautiful. Well, what do you? I mean, so the, so then is that something you think about when you have any quote unquote failures? I mean, I just feel like successful people are are always talking about like how their failures are many, and they helped get them where they are today, et cetera. Like, how do you how do you deal with that? Do you just listen to Quincy in your head going? Just don't quit, well, no, going. no, because sometimes it sucks so bad that you <laughs> you forget about Quincy, like you, yeah. you forgot, and then and then sometimes it's it sucks so bad that you remember Quincy and you're like, shut the fuck up, Quincy. <laughs> I want to quit. If I want to quit, it's my business. So, <laughs> so and then and then yeah, slowly his voice comes back, and then also you also you realize kind of like you know you try to get a lesson from it you try to go okay what is this here 
how does this going to make me better mm. as a filmmaker? As much as I'm loath to admit it, this failure is supposed to teach me something and make me a better filmmaker. Because I'm not going to stop being a filmmaker. It's almost like yeah, um, when you have a relationship, when you meet your person, you have this unspoken sort of, or maybe sometimes it's spoken thing where it's like, <laughs> no matter what happens, like I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. Right. So you have to have, a, I think you have to at least have that mindset with your career. Like mm. failure is failure is not an option. Like I'm not, it's an option. You're going to fail. Right. But, but it's not but like you're not going to leave. Not, it's not, it's not, not a lethal stop. blow. All right. Well, Thank this is, so much, uh, this has been good. This has been good for me. Yeah. I appreciate this. I really do. Yeah. Keep in touch. I hope you enjoyed that fantastic interview. I wanted to read a wonderful review that I got on Apple Podcasts. It's from Not at Odds. Amazing. I listened to your interview with Stan Brooks. Amazing interview. Can't wait to listen to more. Super simple, right to the point, and it reminds us again, listen to episode one, Stan Brooks. It's so fantastic. Thank you, guys, and thank you, Not at Odds. I appreciate it. And if you want your review to be read on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review on uh, Apple Podcasts whenever you get the chance, and I'll maybe be able to read it on next week's episode. Thank you guys so much if you already have reviewed and rated. The support's been amazing, and I, and I just really appreciate it. I hope you guys have a great day. Thank you so much for listening to Mentors on the Mic. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend you know would love it. Let me know what you learned or what stayed with you on our Instagram, at Mentors on the Mic. I will be sharing even more information about our mentors there. These are crazy times, and now more than ever, it's so important to connect. Talk to someone about what you learned today who would really appreciate it, and send them the episode. Also, if you love the show, please go ahead and leave us a rating on iTunes. Every week I'm choosing a review to read on an episode. It really makes a huge difference in growing this. Thanks. <laughs>